you want But if you try sometimes You might find You get what you need Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. And you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network online at prn.fm. Mondays at 10 a.m. And then, wow, (laughs) we're totally global. So it's Mondays, 10 a.m. here in New York, but it could be whatever time. I remember once I was in Indonesia. And so I went to this, uh, there's this little... (laughs) <laughs> communications. To, we're, we're on the island of Bali on the other side of the island. So there wasn't, you know, not the tourist side. So we went to this uh, this station and you know, there was a fence around it and generators and a tower. That's where I could make a phone call back to New York. And I'd call nine o'clock at night and it would be nine in the morning in New York. So it was exactly halfway around the world. So on visionaries who talk about creativity in the arts, science, technology, culture, and spirituality. And you can catch our back shows, more about them later, online at visionaries.podbean.com. P-O-D-B-E-A-N is in Nancy.com. So go back there. You can catch any of our back shows. And last Monday I was talking about how we uh, come to build, create ourselves through our stories and our arts, particularly talking about movies. And I want to talk more about that today, about movies and mythology. But before that, a couple of... Uh, a little bit of free association. Maybe next week I'll talk about education. I'm a professor. <clears throat> Tell you more about that next week. But this morning I was just flipping through some some YouTubes and I came across Peter Thiel. So Peter Thiel's a famous Silicon Valley venture capitalist and really knowledgeable, interesting figure. I've heard him talk at some conferences, and he was being interviewed about education and made the very interesting point that you can tell that an industry's in trouble when its value is uh, exclusivity. He says there's only two institutions, nightclubs and uh, education, that thrive by keeping people out. In other words, if you're pick on somebody, Harvard, and, you know, this is a great opportunity for people, and you, whatever the class size is, you know, they take 1,200 undergraduates every year. If it's so great, why don't they double that to 2,400 and, you know, build it up over a 20-year period so they can assure there's no decline in quality? Well, they can't do that. It would uh, decrease the value of their degree, which is based not on the quality of the education, but on the exclusivity. So where's that at? So anyway, lots of thoughts about education. And maybe next week, uh, that's what we'll talk about. And then I just want to mention something. Last Saturday, I went to a lecture by Lawrence Weschler and Walter Murch. So if if you know anything about film, Walter Murch is the most respected film sound person and editor. 
and <clears throat> he worked on the sound and or the editing of uh, THX 1138, The Godfather movies, Apocalypse Now, The English Patient, Cold Mountain. Actually, Cold Mountain got its own book because <laughs> <clears throat> Walter edited it on a Macintosh with, what is it, Final Cut Pro is the Mac uh, editing software. And before that, you needed expensive, well, we're just beginning digital editing. And, you know, before that, you used, he used a razor blade and film, and then it became digital, and people used Avid, which required a $100,000 machine to plug into your computer. And with Final Cut Pro, you could just get a powerful Mac laptop and edit the movie. And that changed everything. You know, Walter said, once again, I can have assistance. I can say, here, take this, take your laptop, download this sequence, go in the other room and see what you can do with it. Which you couldn't do if you only had one Avid machine. So uh, anyway, there's a whole book about that. But for the past some years, Walter has been fooling around with an idea. So Walter is um, kind of a science buff. You know, he reads all the, all, the, all the intelligent layperson books on science. And he started in, in reading The Sleepwalkers by Arthur Kessler, one of my favorites, uh, because it's a great book. We usually learn about, you know, from Aristotle to Copernicus to Kepler to Newton. Well, I skipped Taco Brahe there. But there's this little sequence, and it's, it's always presented in the same way about how they're struggling to get to what we know now. But what if you see it in terms of the world, the universe, as they understood it at that time in each, for each of these figures? And in that book, <clears throat> Walter came across a footnote about a theory of the distribution of the orbits of the planets. And he found out that the theory is now discredited, but that if you apply a certain formula, you get the orbits of uh, Mercury, then Venus, then the Earth, then Mars, then Jupiter, then Saturn, etc. And the theory seemed to hold quite well. And then... They, you know, more planets showed up, Uranus, Neptune, and it wasn't doing so well. So it became discarded. And the key thing that scientists did a lot disliked about the theory is that it's numerology. Yeah, you can play games with numbers. Uh, actually, I have a colleague. You heard him on this show. Um, pardon my digressions. That's the way I think. Uh, but a while back, I had Bill Catavalis on the show. You can find the interview on uh, the archives for the show. And Bill's been working for some years on an approach to atomic structure, subatomic particles, which is basically numerological. In other words, you find these patterns in these numbers, and scientists really don't like that kind of thinking. So Bill hasn't published, but yeah, one of these days. Hopefully soon, because he's 92. <laughs> anyway, uh, so this theory <coughs> that Walter had come across uh, fell 
totally into disrepute and totally out of favor. And Walter found it interesting, and it has been totally verboten in astrophysics circles for, you know, more than 100 years. And so no one's looked at it, but we now have a lot more data. In other words, we've got dozens and dozens of moons within our solar system. So we have particularly Saturn and Jupiter have lots of moons, and we're finding planets orbiting. We have exoplanets. We have planets orbiting around distant stars, and we're finding those by the dozen. So what if you start gathering information about where all those orbits are? Do they fit that theory? Well, you got to get the book. Waves Passing in the Night by Lawrence Weschler, describing the um, speculative work of Walter Murch, famous film editor, but now figure in astrophysics. And uh, Walter will come on our program sometime in the future. I couldn't get him today because he's totally booked up. So if you are into this kind of thing, uh, do some searching online. Uh, he's he's talking in various bookstores, I think, tonight and tomorrow and uh, in the New York area. So look that up, and then he could be in other cities. So maybe go to the publisher's website. You can find the publisher. Let me just take a look here. Publisher is, hang on, Bloomsbury. So look up Bloomsbury. Look up the PR on the book and see uh, you might catch one of these fantastic lectures with <laughs> we're tempted to say PowerPoint. He actually uses Keynote. But um, uh, definitely recommend it. Now, the interesting part, for, one of the interesting parts for me is, you know, so what's causing this? And, you know, maybe it's some type of wave pattern interference in the gravitational fields that create what he describes as hills and valleys. And the Orbits are more likely to be in the valleys than in the hills. And a whole big chunk of the book is on the sociology of science. You know, what is permitted? What are you permitted to think about, talk about? Well, I'm a real contrarian. <laughs> Don't get me started on evolution, you know. You know, evolution is a fact. Darwin's theory is not. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Lynn Margulis' uh, symbiogenesis as an alternative to, um, to uh, natural selection to describe how evolution works. Not only that, here we have uh, 100 years of information theory, and obviously inheritance is an information phenomena, and no one's applying information theory to... to um, evolution because, well, we have all the answers. We, we have no need of looking, you know, any further. Uh, excuse me. So uh, anyway, that's my approach to science, and we'll talk about that in the future. But anyway, I wanted to talk about mythology and movies today. And just thinking about some films like, uh, if we think mythology and movies, we always start with Star Wars. So in 1947, Joseph Campbell wrote uh, the book that put him on the map, 
hero with a thousand faces. And after that, he wrote other books, uh, mostly about, well, um, The Hero with a Thousand Faces about, uh, to exaggerate, how all myths are the same myth. And then his later books were about all the different myths. So the later books, uh, the key books, are The Masks of God, Primitive Religion, um, Primitive Oriental, Occidental, and Creative Mythology, and under the series, a four-volume series, Mass of God. But in The Hero with a Thousand Journeys, Campbell describes the archetypal hero journey. So the hero journey is, if you're into this stuff, you can recite this in your sleep, uh, a separation from ordinary reality, a journey to a realm of fabulous forces, where a decisive victory is won, and then a return to enrich the world. And then there are all the variations. For example, you can be called to the journey. Um, Jack throws the beans out, or his mother throws the beans out the window, and overnight this giant beanstalk grows. And so Jack climbs the beanstalk. We're not in ordinary reality anymore. And so Many fairy tales begin that way, that separation from ordinary reality. But what if Jack didn't climb the beanstalk? That's a refusal of the journey. And it's really bad for the, um, for the person who refuses the journey. They then spend the rest of their life in the wasteland. And then, so that's one of the variations. And what happens if in the um, encounter... Uh, the hero is not victorious, but is defeated. That's another variation. And uh, what else happens? Well, there's the encounter with the hero helpers. You know, these often little people who help the figure, the hero figure along the way. And other things go on. There's some really rich development. There's the reconciliation with the father the encounter with the father, the encounter with the mother. Particularly important is the encounter with the father. So um, everybody's, you know, delved into this when Star Wars came out. So what happens in Star Wars? Luke Skywalker, our hero, um, is in ordinary reality on the farm, and he's really bored, right? You see this scene where he's sitting there, and of course they're twin sons, so we know we're on a, another planet, and he's wistfully looking off into space. He knows that's where he belongs. Uh, he belongs on his hero journey. And then there's the inciting incident, right? So one of the two droids that he bought... Um, suddenly when he unlocks it, projects the hologram. Obi-Wan, help me. Obi-Wan, help me. Who's Obi-Wan? Uh, could that be old Ben? You know, the old bearded figure out in the desert? So he goes to find old Ben, who, of course, is Obi-Wan Kenobi, great Jedi warrior. So... Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi says, okay, 
we have to we have to go off on this adventure. You're going to come with me. And so we go to the spaceport where there's the bar with the weird creatures. Remember the band with all these weird creatures. And we encounter, you know, we're now at the portal to this other realm. And we pick up, um, um, I don't even remember the names of all these characters, right? Uh, we pick up our adventurous space captain who takes us off to this realm of adventure. And eventually we're going to encounter Darth Vader. And then we discover, it's a couple movies later, we discover who's Darth Vader. Darth Vader is actually Luke Skywalker's father. So, really rich stuff. So where did George Lucas get all this? And of course, he got it all from Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is sort of a textbook for the movies. So uh, that sort of introduces us to this mythological approach to, uh, to interpreting movies. And as I described in the last two, last two weeks, this hero journey uh, becomes embedded in our mythology. It originates in Western culture with the Arthurian romances, Parsifal, and it sort of becomes into our um, our sort of uh, detective movies and and novels in a in a famous line from the essay Raymond Chandler's essay, "The Simple Art of Murder." Down these mean streets, a man must go, uh, and so. You know, we then see that in Huckleberry Finn, and as Hemingway says, all of American literature begins with Huckleberry Finn. But then there are many other thematic um, uh, scenarios in film, and uh, one of them struck me. Actually, I do a website about this approach to movies with a colleague of mine, John David Ebert. You heard him on our on this show a while back. You'll find it in our uh, arc, in our archives at visionaries.podbean.com. And we'll have um, we'll have uh, John David Ebert on again in the future. Also, he's got many um, YouTubes and uh his lectures are online on YouTube, but also other places. So do some uh, Google searching to find where they all are. But he and I do a website. We have not been keeping it up. Naughty us. <laughs> but there's a huge amount of great back material there. Cinemadiscourse.com. And so we look at movies from a mythological point of view. And... I, you know, my wife is a an opera singer, so of course we went to see Phantom of the Opera and both the play and the movie. And just a little thought here, but uh, boy, do uh, do movies have it over theater? I mean, if they have the nerve to get people who can actually sing, <laughs> in this case, which they didn't, uh, the best singer in the in the movie is the uh, reigning opera star at the beginning of the movie played by Mimi Driver 
because someone else does the singing for her. But the other characters are not um, notable for their singing. But what was interesting to me was how um, you can sort of see it as an exercise in, exercise in archetypalism, this archetypal approach to a movie. And so I did an article about it on Cinema Discourse. It's hard to navigate Cinema Discourse, so go to Google and put Lobel and then Phantom of the Opera, and it'll take you right to the uh, that way back movie review I did on cinemadiscourse.com. But it's called How to Review an Archetypal Movie. So the point is that we have to first know what the movie's about. So, you know, Phantom of the Opera is a um, novel from the early 20th century. There's the great Lon Chaney movie of 1925, many movies and adaptations since. But the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, uh, Phantom of the Opera, the movie on which the movie is based, uh, stands out because um, it is the highest grossing piece of entertainment ever. So I have some figures, if I can dig them up. Uh, well, uh, as I recall, the uh, Phantom... Here we go. Uh, no, I don't have them right in front of me. So, uh, but it's grossed over $5 billion, the uh, musical, Phantom of the Opera. And the movie was not as successful, but it's an absolute delight worth seeing. And how does a musical get to gross five billion dollars, five plus billion dollars? And the answer is some people are seeing something in it. And uh, for what I'm going to describe, I think women are seeing something in it. And then they drag all the male figures in their lives to see it with them, hoping maybe they'll catch on. So our key figures, we've got um, Christine. So she's a young woman growing uh, into adulthood. She negotiates the man in her life. She integrates the conscious and the unconscious, and she balances art and family. Wow. I mean, that's, you know, that's everything a woman needs to do, right? <laughs> your career and family, uh, the male figures in your life. Uh, how do you make all that work? And of course, it can really go wrong, which is a lot of literature about uh, Anna Karenina or, um, you know, dozens of examples of how one's life can, can come crashing down as these things are not successfully negotiated. And what are these things being negotiated? Well, there's the father figure. So, um, uh, of course, idealized in a little girl's love. Then there's the phantom, her demon lover and mentor. And he's the lunar figure. And his mask is a half moon. He represents the unconscious, art, creativity, transcendent of the joys and sorrows of life. Who needs life when you can have your art? And where does that go terribly wrong? In the red shoes. Uh, 
So that Rich Hughes is an example of an artist who does not successfully negotiate art and life. Then there's Raoul. <laughs> what a name, Raoul. Uh, her domestic lover husband, Solar, with his flowing blonde hair, he represents the conscience, conscious family, marriage, children, domesticity, emerging, immersing in the joys and sorrows of life, whereas the phantom represents turning away from life and towards one's art. So that sort of sets up our characters. And then we've got our story. It begins with uh, the old opera house. It's the early 20th century. This opera house from, you know, 50 years ago when it was built in splendid, splendor and new. But now we're into the early 20th century. You can, only, you can date it by the automobiles, right? So we're maybe around 1915, 1920. And the uh, opera house is being kind of be torn down. And there's an awkward, <laughs> today we wouldn't do that, right? You know, any old building, you want to hang on to it. But um, you, um, uh, it's being, there's an auction. And the auction is <clears throat> of, you know, all the old sets and stuff. And this old man in a wheelchair comes, and that's Raoul. And, you know, back for the memories. And then we get this flashback. And the flash, that gives us the date. 1870, 1870. So 1870, it's sort of based on the Paris Opera House, but it's more, it's not quite as big as that. The Paris Opera is huge. This is a little bit more to scale so we can handle it. And we open with, here of all our characters, and, you know, uh, we've got our opera star, we have our young ingenue, who's, you know, someday going to be a star. And Raoul is this wealthy nobleman who, um, you know, is financing things and wants to see this young star perform. And then the shadowy figure of the Phantom. And he haunts the opera. And we later get his backstory. He's somebody who um, was an abused boy from a circus. He runs away. And actually, he's a uh, he's a heavy duty figure. He doesn't just run away. He kills the uh, the uh, person who had entrapped him in this circus and escapes to the basement of the opera, where the opera staff raise him, and he becomes the phantom. He has a scarred face, so he wears a mask. And as a voice through the ventilating system, he has been. Um, mentoring, coaching, and encouraging uh, Christina, or Christine. And uh, she thinks it's the ghost of her father. So, uh, so now we have, you know, all of these psychological dynamics of who these figures are, what they represent in Christina's unconscious, and um, we get... Uh, who's going to, you know, dominate and win her affection and win her soul? Is she going to become domesticated and a mother 
and have children? Is she going to serve her art and be a great opera singer? And Raoul wants her as his wife, and the Phantom wants her to be um, a great artist. And then we have all the conflict. And so, I mean, it's really explicit in its symbolism where she, you know, goes down to the to the Phantom's lair in the underground of the opera house, and that's the unconscious. And that's where art and creativity come from. And then she meets Raoul on the roof, and that's the consciousness and the solar conscious energy of this blonde solar figure. And the two of them, you know, have their conflict, their encounters between uh, Raoul and the phantom. And eventually she has her starring performance, but then she goes off and marries Raoul. Now, what's the ultimate feel-good here (laughs) is Raoul at the auction buys a little toy that had been uh, the childhood toy of the phantom that he had then given to uh, Christine. And he brings it. She Okay, he's a very old man. He's in a wheelchair. He's rich, so, you know, he has a big limousine. And he buys this at the auction and then takes it to her grave. And he leaves it on her grave. When he gets there, there's a white rose. It had been left there by the phantom. What has been going on all these years? You know, did she abandon the phantom for Raoul? Or had she been seeing him? Has Christine been seeing the phantom when Raoul's been away on business trips? Has she had both? Has the phantom been giving music lessons to their children? In other words, this type of drama presents the choice. And what we're told is that it wasn't a choice. Christine had both. So this is a movie that, you know, wow. (laughs) So Christine's three men, the father, the demon lover, the husband lover, she's able to have it all. So we think of the father figure in uh, something like Henry James Washington Square and how he's domineering and uh, uh, spoils his daughter's chance at a successful life. Um, We think of these day and night figures uh, between Uh, For example, in Mozart's The Magic Flute, we have the Queen of the Night versus Sarastro, (laughs) what a name, Uh, who is the sun god who easily defeats rationality, easily defeats the unconscious because it's a kind of, pardon me, uh, ham-fisted enlightenment rationalist uh, opera, and uh, but we get this more subtle 
uh, version in Phantom of the Opera, again, where the Phantom is the demon lover, mentor, lunar, with his half-moon mask, the unconscious, art and creativity, and transcendent of the joys and sorrows of life. And then where do we see that figure? The ultimate, you know, bad boy, brooding <laughs> male figure in Wuthering Heights. So where we get uh, Heathcliff, who's the ultimate dark lover figure. And so we get the Phantom with his bad moods and, you know, uh, he can't be seen. And then she rips his mask off and he freaks because she sees his scarred face and her response is, so? <laughs> uh, oh, there's a great line in, uh, in um, uh, Stagecoach with John Wayne that I got to describe sometime. The, uh, I'll describe it now. So, because we're doing free form association here. So, Stagecoach is one of these movies that presents all the parts of the American psyche. You know, it's based on Huck Finn in the raft going down the Mississippi, and Huck and Jim encounter all these different qualities of the American character. You know, the, the, um, Skullduggery, the prince, the king, the the um, the bad townspeople, the etc. And in Stagecoach, we've got the uh, you know the pregnant woman, the alcoholic doctor, the um, sort of priest, uh, minister, con man, and the the young outlaw John Wayne <laughs> at his most handsome and. Uh, at the end of the movie, John Wayne, does, oh, and the prostitute, right? <laughs> so at the end of the movie, John Wayne dispatches the bad guys who had killed his father and brother and stolen his ranch. And uh, he's in his wagon, and he says to the former prostitute, you're going to come with me. We'll get married. She says, I can't do that. I'm a fallen woman. And he says, so, and reaches down, pulls her up into his wagon. So, you know, you get this American vision of the new opportunity that one can transcend one's background for building a new life. And we see this in, uh, so all of these mythic forms being played out in these in these movies, and Phantom of the Opera, just the most perfect representation of it. And so the Phantom is the unconscious and art, and Raoul is her domestic lover, husband, solar, with his flowing blonde hair, the conscious, uh, consciousness, family, marriage, children, domesticity, immersion in the joys and sorrows of life. So in abandoning art and going into life, they know they'll eventually die, which um, she dies and he becomes old. But then what about her art? And we see her successfully negotiate that. She's able to perform, but then leave it for marriage. And in The Red Shoes, 
uh, it's not successful. And she's trapped and destroyed by her art. And in Anna Karenina, the domestic, you know, she badly negotiates between the domesticity and the demon lover, and it destroys her, and she commits suicide. And in uh, the Phantom of the Opera, final scene on her gravestone is both the white rose and, um, you know, the uh, dates of her joyful um, married life. So that's an example of um, how to think about an archetypal movie, whether it's Star Wars or or the Phantom of the Opera. And then, well, how good is a movie? Well, now how well does it uh, fulfill its role? And that's, you know, what we can think about some more about. Uh, and uh, so let's take a break, and then we'll look at some more archetypal visions of movies. This is the number one radio station for progressive independent thinkers. The Progressive Radio Network. Activist Radio on the Progressive Radio Network is a weekly program for all Americans who are not in the wealthiest 1% of the U.S. population. Fred and Eli offer a little history you didn't learn in high school, some news stories you haven't seen on our mainstream media, and a couple of songs to help you join the resistance. Our website, classwars.org, offers a little background on how the few richest of our citizens lie to the rest of us to expand their power and wealth. Class wars is a dirty term in our media, which always implies that America is above such crudeness. But the very rich are not above that at all. They are sick with greed, of course, but so far the rest of us are what might be worse. We haven't organized yet to fight back. So gear up for some class wars every Sunday from 5 to 6 p.m. on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.fm. Hello, everyone. I'm Bhavani Jaroff, natural food chef and owner of IE Green, a company dedicated to connecting the dots between the foods we eat, how they are grown, how they impact our environment, and how they affect our health. We celebrate the pleasures around the table and work to build a sustainable food movement of like-minded people. I'd like to invite you to join my show, I Eat Green with Bhavani, every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, where I share my recipe of the week, discuss food and environmental policies that affect us all, and interview a leader in the fields of food, health, or the environment. Together, we can work to build a sustainable food movement, one bite at a time. Remember, my show is every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. I hope you can join us. Stay tuned for more news you can use on PRN, the Progressive Radio Network. This is John LaBelle. This is Visionaries. We're here at prn.fm, Progressive Radio Network, Mondays at 10 a.m., unless you're not in the East Coast of the United States, then we're some other time. <laughs> oh, uh, you could be at uh, 
10 p.m. somewhere. Uh, so anyway, uh, and our back shows are at visionaries.podbean.com. And I'm talking today about um, archetypal movies. So, you know, it's not fair to a work. What I'm doing is not fair to a work of art. So a work of art should stand as a work on its own. And I'm talking about what does it mean? What is it about? And, of course, that there's a famous Chopin story, right, where he plays a piano piece. The young woman says, well, what, what does it mean? So he plays it again. <laughs> it doesn't mean it is, but we'll allow ourselves to do that. We'll allow ourselves to talk about what does it mean. Um, there's a, a wonderful woman who's no longer with us, and if you are a National Public Radio fan, you have heard her over the years, years ago, also on WBAI, Margaret Adler. And a while back, she <laughs> began to wonder, what, um, what, 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 why all these vampire movies and books? What, what are these vampire thing all about? And so... I think she wrote a book about this. So if you go to Google and you put in Margot Adler and Vampire. <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, she came to the conclusion that vampires are predators that are trying to be human, which is what we are. <laughs> so we identify with vampires. And, of course, we don't have too many vampires recently. We've got a lot more zombies. So what are zombies all about? Why all this, why all these zombie things? I think but Walking Dead's coming back, right? I don't, I don't watch it. My, my wife keeps me informed. <laughs> oh. But uh, I think she's, she's seen them all. And, and then there's this French series. And... So it was with subtitles, but I think you can get it, you know, uh, online. I forget the name of it, but uh, there's now an American version in which the zombies are totally normal human beings. They're people who maybe died 10 years ago, and then they come back um, at the age they were when they died, and try to fit into the world the way it is 10 years later or 20 years later, whenever it is they're coming back. And so that's really interesting. I saw, I saw a couple of those and definitely um, to be recommended. But uh, in this vampire thing, one of the ways to think about it is, you know, vampires are sort of like superhumans. Um, they they can be destroyed, but it's a lot more difficult. And is transhumanism bringing us that? Well, that's a whole topic. We had a show about that, transhumanism, with um, Natasha Vita Moore. So go look it up in our archive. We'll have her on again sometime. But the, if you think about it, we've already doubled our lifespan from, you know, the time of the founding of the country or whatever, and what if in the next hundred years we double it again or triple it or quadruple it? 
And maybe that's doable. You know, there's some creatures like sharks that don't age. <laughs> you know, a 50-year-old shark and a 200-year-old shark are, there's not much difference. And so then we get movies like Alien Resurrection. So there's Sigourney Weaver and all the alien movies. But in uh, Alien Resurrection, Sigourney Weaver, uh, what is it, um, Ridley, is that her character, has alien DNA in her. And Winona Ryder is a robot. And, though you know, there's all this carnage on the uh, spaceship, and they're the only two survivors, and it lands on Earth. So they've made it back, and we've now introduced this robot, and the alien DNA is now in the human race. So uh, what's that going to mean? So a lot to think about in terms of zombies, and the obvious thought is, how do we react to outsiders, people who are different? How do we um, experience ourselves, imagine ourselves, think we're being invaded? And if so, uh, what does that mean? And so that's my guess, you know, that why there's a, there's a uh, remember in the 50s, all those movies, Them and Godzilla and The Thing, uh, they were all a combination of a fear of nuclear weapons and a fear of communism, right? Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Blob. <laughs> oh, what a movie. And um, who would have thought it would launch such a great career? But anyway, so, you know, I try to light it. I like to think that way. What? How do we, you know, like the Terminator movies. So the Terminators mean we are in fear of what our technology might do to us. And sometimes when I'm in a skeptical mood, I'll say, yeah, we're really worried about being attacked by our toasters. Uh, but then, <laughs> you know, with we haven't seen them in New York yet, but there are cities where there are driverless cars tooling around. And, and of course, the point is, you know, well, yeah, you know, a driverless car could be, could screw up, but... You know, you never saw an accident with a car with a driver. You know, so obviously driverless cars are going to be hundreds of times safer. You know, if they, obviously they will have accidents, but they're going to be hundreds of times safer than driver cars. But that's not the problem. The problem is what's it going to do to our lives? And, yeah, you know, so I can read the newspaper or you know, uh, watch a movie on my tablet on the way to work. I don't think that's the big issue. You know, the big issue is, um, of course, there's a lot of truck driver jobs and cab driver jobs are going to disappear, but that's not even it. What I think it's going to be is how it flows into every aspect of our lives. You know, your driver of this car is going to know everything on your schedule for the next week and everything on everybody else's schedule 
unless maybe half the people, you know, half are on iPhones and half are on Android. But in any case, uh, it's going to know what everybody's doing in order to plan uh, the best route with the least traffic. But what's the other implication if everybody's car knows where the computer's controlling all of them, knows all of our schedules? Um, so uh, something to think about. But anyway, so <laughs> that's, you know, that's some of my thoughts about how to think about these movies, these Terminator movies or the Alien movies or the the other way to think about the Alien movies is um, an attitude toward nature. We've kind of been conjoled into thinking that nature is kind and benign, right? I mean, the the Earth is just right. It's the exact proper distance from the sun so that it doesn't get too hot and it doesn't get too cold and everything's in balance. And evil human beings, by emitting carbon dioxide, are screwing it up and it's going to end civilization. Uh, because if it wasn't for human beings, everything would be just precisely and properly balanced. Uh I don't think so. Uh, nature is pretty rough out there. You know, things like the point where we got hit by a planet the size of Mars and it ejected the moon. <laughs> I mean, that was pretty rough. You know, like the surface of the Earth was molten for maybe a million years. Uh, not too much life lived, survived through that. And then the um, meteor showers that melted the surface of the Earth. Uh, so, you know, there have been these rough moments in planetary history. And then, you know, we're told how stable the climate has been. Well, that's not what I learned in the fourth grade, because I grew up on Long Island. And the north shore of Long Island is rocky, and the south shore is sandy. Well, why is that? Because there was this glacier 10,000 years ago. That's not very long ago. There were a lot of people around 10,000 years ago. Uh, there was actually, you know, the beginnings of high civilizations. <clears throat> and there was this uh, Ice Age glacier. It came all the way to Long Island and stopped at the sandbar that's Long Island and started melting and dumped all its rocks on the North Shore. That glacier was one mile high. It ground to a powder everything underneath it. And these glaciers happen like every 10,000 years. We're due to more soon. You know, it's not like it's always nice and stable. So what does the alien tell us? That nature can be really nasty. You get these wasps that lay their eggs inside of living tarantulas. And then the wasp eggs are born and eat the tar living tarantula. I mean, eesh, which is what the alien does. It lays its eggs inside of people. And so, um, uh, and, you know, they sort of make the alien out to be nasty, but, they, you know, the wasps aren't nasty. That's just the way they work. You know, like some of us are vegetarians. Others eat hamburgers. That's just, you know, human beings uh, are carnivores. That's the way, uh, you know, it's like for the antelope, getting eaten by a lion is very unpleasant. For the lion, it's lunch. 
<laughs> Lions can't eat grass. doesn't work for them. So that's another way to see the Alien movies, sort of uh, just showing us this um, unconscious process of nature that if we want to survive, uh, we don't want to surrender to. And uh, Sigourney Weaver doesn't. <laughs> Battles it out movie after movie. So um, running low on time here, and there are a couple other really cool movies I want to talk about. Little Mermaid, The Truman Show, and Groundhog Day. So I think we're going to save those for an, an upcoming show. And I want to talk about this approach that I'm describing, this archetypal approach. And we associate this archetypalism with figures like uh, Joseph Campbell and Carl Jung. And Jung is sort of in disrepute in academic circles for his notion of archetypes and the collective unconscious. So maybe we'll talk a bit about that in future shows. But archetypalism is a notion that there's an archetype and then there are manifestations. So example, an archetype might be a dying and resurrecting God born of a virgin and associated with a cross. Well, what comes to mind? You know, uh, Christ and Christianity. But every religion has one. It's uh, Quaxquotal for the Mesoamericans, Demuz for the Mesopotamians. Um, it's Osiris for the Greeks. There's lots of dying and resurrecting gods born of a virgin associated with the cross. That's the archetype. And then Demuz or Christ or Osiris is the manifestation within a particular culture or in a particular story. So the hero journey is an archetype, separation from ordinary reality, journey to a realm of fabulous forces, etc. And then it's manifest in Luke Walker in Sky, uh, Star Wars, in um, uh, Jack and the Beanstalk, in The Boy with the Seven League Boots, in Buddha, Christ, and Mohammed, in uh, Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain, begins with the funicular going up the mountain. We're leaving ordinary reality. One of the movies I'll talk about next time is Groundhog Day. Beginning of the movie, they're going, the weatherman and his producer are going off to Punxsutawney to cover the groundhog. And so they're leaving Pittsburgh, and there's their van crossing the bridge. We're leaving ordinary reality. We're going to a realm where special things are going to happen. So this notion of archetypes is a form of essentialism, that there are essential qualities in things which then become manifest. And essentialism is very in disrepute in social sciences these days. So uh, maybe we'll talk about essentialism next week and what you know how it's in disrepute. So we would have said 100 years ago, that uh, refer to the tiger. And so there is the species tiger. And all members of that group share an identity, a set of essential characteristics. And today we say, no, there's just a temporary gathering of DNA that 
There are related creatures that are somewhat different that have some of that DNA. There are creatures in the past that had some of that DNA. There'll be creatures in the future that have some of that DNA. But there's no essential tiger. Well, uh, whether or not that's the case in science or the social sciences, it is the case in the arts. And so in order to be able to talk about the arts, I think we have to talk about essentialism, archetypalism. We'll do some more of that next week. But notice that we say, uh, we use the term tiger for that tiger over there. But then we also use the term, the tiger is a dangerous animal. And so the fact that we still use that term, even though we're not supposed to, even though science tells us we can't think that way, and social science tells us we can't think that way, we, um, you know, we still have that notion lingering. So thanks for spending the hour with us. We'll be back here next week on a Monday, depending on what part of the world you're in, 10 a.m. This is Visionaries with John LaBelle. See you next week. Check our back shows in the archive. <laughs>